all's well that ends well, except when it doesn't, like these last few chapters of the book of Judges. Let me show you what I mean on this episode of By the Verse. Thanks again for joining me on By the Verse. We have finally arrived at the end of the book of Judges. On our last episode, we dealt with Micah and the Levite and also the tribe of Dan. We saw how the spiritual condition of these three was pretty mixed up. They say they served the Lord and they did religious things, but they all serve in kind of a twisted kind of way. They mix worship of Yahweh with pagan practices. And to them, it's perfectly normal. Well, this time we'll meet another Levite. And it's good to note that even though we will meet several people in these stories, we will only have one personal name mentioned in the last three chapters of the book. And even that is kind of a fleeting reference to that particular person. They're not a major person uh, in any of the stories. So the names of these people are not mentioned because they're really not important. It's not about who these specific people are. It's about what they represent. We will finish the book today. We won't read it all, but we will finish the book. And we're going to start right now in chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Now, on the surface, it would seem that these verses are not connected to the stories that we talked about in the previous two chapters. However, uh, there are a few uh, links that kind of connect the two. Now, first, we're dealing with another Levite, okay, a person who is supposed to be set apart. Now, this person should represent a higher level of dedication to God, but as we'll see, this is not necessarily the case. Uh, the setting is also in the hill country of Ephraim, which is the same region as the previous story although it's more in the remote parts of that area. Now, there is also a link here uh, with Bethlehem and Judah. In the previous story, the Levite came from Bethlehem looking to make a better life for himself. Now, in this story, this Levite takes a concubine or a second wife from Bethlehem, which could mean he was also trying to make a better life for himself uh, because this relationship is primarily for sexual purposes. Now, the problem is that this woman is unfaithful to him. And since the penalty for unfaithfulness is adultery, uh, the penalty for adultery, sorry, is death, it would make sense that she would run away and go home. I mean, after all, who wants to die? 
so when the Levite decided he wanted his wife back, he went to her hometown and was received by her and her father, and they initially stayed there for three days. Now, what happens next, we're not going to read that part, but the father-in-law basically came up with every excuse that he could think of to get them to stay a little bit longer. And he does this for several days. I mean, he basically says, hey, you can't leave on an empty stomach. Hey, let's eat, you know, a little bit uh, longer. Or he'll say, hey, it's too late in the day. You know, you you can't leave yet. I mean, he is stalling, okay? And his stall tactics are effective for several more days. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say why he was doing this, but it's probably the case that he knows the penalty for adultery, He may not want his daughter to be put to death when they get back to the hill country of Ephraim. So maybe he's stalling for some assurance uh, that she will be forgiven. It could also be the case, though, that he doesn't want her publicly punished because it would bring shame on the family. Notice that she is never given a choice in whether she wants to go back uh, with this man or not. It's just assumed that she will, okay? So... The last time the father-in-law tried to stall, uh, he's unsuccessful in verse 10. But the man who would not the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. And when they were near Jebus, uh, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay, so finally... They set off, and they're going to come to uh, what is the city that's going to become known as Jerusalem later. But at this time, uh, it hadn't been conquered by the Benjamites. They tried. It didn't go well early in the book of Judges. Okay, so this is still a Canaanite town. Notice the haughtiness of the Levite. Uh, He refuses to stay there. Uh, Instead, he wants to make his way to Gibeah, which is... Uh, a town in Benjamin. And so they came there and uh, they had to stay in the open square initially because no one showed them hospitality. Now, this is in stark contrast, of course, to the extreme hospitality that they had been shown by the father-in-law. Now, eventually, an old man from Ephraim who was living there at the time uh, would come by, notice them, and he was emphatic Okay, in verse 20 here, it says, And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. Okay, so the fact that no one showed them hospitality uh, when they got there, which was the custom of the day, and that uh, this old man who happens uh, to notice them as he's coming in from uh, the field to go back home, he, he just refuses to let them stay in the square. I mean, this is kind of an ominous sign that things are not quite well in this town. Let's read on at verse 22. Uh, 
And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. All right, so this should make you sick. This story is vile and sickening. It's among uh, the worst of the worst that you're going to find in the entire Bible. Uh, first, the men of the town want to rape a visiting man, okay? Uh, that's sick enough. And at first, we kind of feel good about the old man uh, because he's the only one who shows hospitality. And then when this scene breaks out, you know, he, he calls out the wickedness of the men of the town. Well, that is until... Uh, he offers his own virgin daughter to be raped. I mean, he knows what's going to happen uh, once he sends them out there. He, he offers his own virgin daughter and the man's concubine uh, to be violated uh, by these men. How is it that this old man is good enough, uh, he's a good enough person uh, to show hospitality and call out wickedness, but he values his own daughter less and he values a stranger he just met. Now, from the beginning to the end of these chapters, women are going to be treated as nothing more than property to be used for sexual pleasure. And we'll uh, see that at least two more times uh, before the end of this book. And we may say uh, that we don't see anything uh, extreme like that in our own culture, but the principle actually holds true even for today. The sexualization of women devalues them, and that is our culture. So this Levite, who's supposed to be a righteous person, he forces this woman out the door into the crowd to be violated all night long. And you know what he did next? He went to sleep. Verse 27 says, and her master rose up in the morning, meaning he, he went to sleep, Okay, so he rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out uh, to go his way, behold, there was this concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. So he let her be raped all night long. He knew what was going on. He slept through it, and when he's ready to go and he sees her lying on the ground, he doesn't say, hey, are you okay? Uh, he doesn't ask her how she is. He doesn't care. Instead, all he has to say is, let's go, as if nothing ever happened. Why in the world is this in the Bible? Well, it's because it shows how outrageously callous Sometimes the people of God can be. 
he shows her no compassion or any concern for her well-being, and he's supposed to be the one living by a higher moral standard. Let that sink in. This story is meant to remind us of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. Very similar story. Lot is visited by uh, angels. The men of the town want to rape them. You know, very similar story to the, the Sodom and Gomorrah situation. And those twin cities were so notoriously wicked that God destroyed them. And yet, here's this town lived in by his own people, God's own people, in the land that God has promised to them, and they are acting in exactly the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah. This Levite was so uh, prejudiced against the people who lived in Jabus that he didn't even want to stay there, when in reality, he might have been treated much better by pagans than by God's own people. So we should expect that judgment will come to Gibeah, and that's exactly what begins to happen. Let's read at verse 29. And when he, the Levite, entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. How bizarre and weird and twisted. I mean, you, you thought the book of Revelation is kind of a, a weird book for some of the things that are in there. I mean, this, this is way up there, okay? I mean, the Levite's response uh, to his concubine being raped to death is that he cut her body up and sent her body parts as a rallying cry, basically for civil war, because what happens next is a moment of national unity. All the tribes, of course, except Benjamin, all the tribes show up at Mizpah at the beginning of chapter 20. 400,000 fighting men from all over Israel. I mean, this is the largest coalition of tribes that we've seen in the book since the first opening chapter uh, or two of the book. Okay, so this is a moment of incredible national unity because of the outrageous uh, thing that has been done. It's amazing how outrage, uh, moral outrage, can be a unifying force, especially when there is a hint of uh, hypocrisy mixed in, as we're going to see. And so this congregation of fighting men, they get together and they, they basically ask uh, the man, the Levite, what happened? We want to hear the story. And what he says in chapter 20, verse 4, basically, is that I came to, uh, to uh, Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. Um, and he basically says that they were going to violate him. They, were, they, they tried to, to kill him him, okay? And they violated his concubine and she died. Now, he never says anything about what he did. He never says that he gave her up. He never says he, he forced her because that's pretty much what the story told us. He, he left that part out. It was just all on the men of Gibeah. And so they are so outraged by this that what they do 
is they send a message to Benjamin and they say, listen, you need to give up the men of Gibeah who are responsible for this. And surprisingly, Benjamin doesn't. They decide to stick with their own closest kinsmen and they gather about 26,000 fighters uh, in comparison to Israel's 400,000 fighters. Now, the first thing uh, that they do is the, the men of Israel, they inquire of the Lord, you know, who should go up first. It's basically what they say in verse uh, 18. Notice they didn't ask if they should go. They didn't ask what the Lord would have them to do. They assume that they're going to fight, okay? And they want to know which tribe should go up first. Well, God obliges, and he basically says, hey, Judah should go up first because, I mean, that was the divine order. We saw that even in the very first chapter of this book. Who was the first one that was supposed to go up and take their inheritance? Well, the lot fell to Judah. And so this is what God says to them here. Judah should be the first one to go up. Now, you might ask yourself, why would God say that? I mean, why would God have anything to do with it? Why, why give them a response at all? Well, the reality is God already knows what's in our hearts. He already knows what we want to do. And so it's like God is saying, okay, hey, if you want to do it, go on. He didn't say that he would be with them. He didn't say he would grant them success. He just said, oh, this is what you want to do, go on. It led you to go first. And that first day of the battle uh, Judah got beat up pretty bad by Benjamin and Gibeah. And so that evening, they're licking their wounds, wondering what you know is happening here. How did this uh, happen to us? And so they inquire of the Lord again. This time they ask, uh, should we go up? I mean, they probably should ask that at first, but it's kind of a disingenuous uh, question. They're not asking the Lord what the Lord wants. They're asking for permission to do what they want to do. So the Lord says, eh, go. That what you want to do? Go on, go. And so they go out the second day and they fight and they are beaten badly in chapter uh, 20. And then that's when they have a little more emotion, maybe even a little more uh, repentance uh, on it. Because in chapter 20, verse 26, it says, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Notice this time God actually says, Okay, I'll go with you uh, this time. I'll give them into your hands. And they were successful. They basically draw them in out uh, of the town of Gibeah, and they make it look like they're winning. But while they've been drawn out of the town, other Israelite soldiers go into the town and they start setting things on fire. Uh, and when they see the smoke, they realize, hey, we've got people you know, behind us. And then other people jump out from ambush, okay, and they have a great victory uh, that day. And only about 400 Benjamite soldiers are left, and they are on the run. And they finally come to a place called the Rock of Ramon. Now, you would think that right there, 
it'd be over. I mean, they, they won the battle. But this is one of those cases where the cure is worse than the disease. Because instead of just punishing uh, the men who were responsible uh, for the original crime and punishing the soldiers who protected them, uh, actually, verse 48 in chapter 20 tells us that basically what the men of Israel did was they ransacked all the surrounding towns. They killed all the men, all, all the men who couldn't fight. You know, the old men, uh, the men who were too young to fight. Uh, they killed off the beasts and they, they basically killed off everyone. They killed the women in the town as well. And so now you have a, a situation where people are finally realizing, hey, wait a minute. Only the 600 fighting men of Benjamin are left. That's all that's left of this uh, tribe. How, how can this tribe uh, continue? And they also realized that they had rashly made a vow at the beginning of chapter 20. It does, the beginning of chapter 20 doesn't tell us that they made this vow. We find out later that when they first got together, they made a vow that they weren't going to give any of their daughters uh, to be married to any Benjamites. So they're thinking, if there's only 600 of these men left, and we can't give them any of our daughters uh, to be uh, married to them, this tribe is it's, it's going to disappear. And so they come up with a plan. And their plan is to figure out who of all the people didn't come up when they gave that first rallying cry. You know, was, was there any town, any area that didn't send any fighting soldiers when they gathered at Mizpah at the beginning of chapter 20? And they realized uh, that there was uh, one place uh, that, that hadn't uh, gathered together. And so what they decided to do was they go to this one town and they absolutely decimate the town. Uh, they, they absolutely kill everybody. And then they take 400 daughters, 400 virgins from this town. And they offer those 400 virgins to the men of the Benjamites, okay? And this is uh, at Gabesh Gilead. This is the town they ransacked, killed everybody, and just stole these 400 girls. That's their answer, okay? It's to steal 400 girls, and when they realized it wasn't enough because there were 600 men, they came up with another solution. Hey, there's a town, Shiloh. We'll, just, we'll go to Shiloh because we know they have this custom that during uh, this season, the girls go out and they dance in the vineyards. And so these 200 men who still don't have wives for themselves, why don't you just lie and wait for these girls to come out and snatch 200 of them so that you can have wives? Okay, so let me get this straight. One woman died violently, heinously. It was horrible that that happened to that one woman. But the answer is to kill thousands of men, to violently just destroy a whole town, steal 400 uh, girls away from that town. Okay, can you imagine those 400 girls and what they were going through? And then to lie in ambush for another 200 girls that you just snatch them right out of the field and run. Sounds like this is a recipe for happy marriages. I mean, this is insane that this is happening in Israel. But of course, uh, 
the writer informs us in the very last chapter, the very last verse, chapter 21, in the very last verse, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what is the takeaway from all of this? Well, the book of Judges shows us that there are two things we desperately need. We need salvation. Right? We, we need a, to be delivered. So we need a deliverer who will rescue us from the oppression of the enemy. We need that. And, and we need somebody who's far superior to these very, um, very flawed deliverers that we've seen up to this point. But not only do we need a deliverer to rescue us, not only from oppression, but we need somebody to rule over us. We need a king. Right? We need a deliverer and we need a king. Because in those days, there was no king to rule over them. The spiritual implication is that if we are just left to our own devices with no real godly spiritual leadership in our lives, man, we'll justify all manner of hypocritical self-righteous thing. We will think that we're acting righteously by avenging this one man's loss of his concubine. In actuality, we commit even greater crimes in trying to avenge the one crime. And we need a deliverer, we need a savior, we need a king. Because the reality is, that is who Jesus is in our lives. He saves us from oppression from the outside. He saves us from ourselves on the inside. And I encourage you to allow Jesus not only to deliver you, but allow him to rule and reign in you so that you don't do what is merely right in your own eyes, but that your life is marked by doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, thank you so much for sticking with me as we have walked through all of this book together. We're going to take a break for a while. When we come back, we'll work through some more of the Bible by the verse.